Cops declare protests at one Toronto 401 overpass illegal, prescribing safer alternatives to street drugs saved lives, according to a new study from British Columbia. Researchers decried the devastating impact of boreal forest logging on caribou. Representatives for Israel defend the country this morning against South Africa's charges of genocide in Gaza. And Canada goes to war, apparently against Yemen. Good morning. It's Friday, January 12th. I'm Nora. Here are your headlines. Let's start today in Toronto and at the city's most iconic spaces, highway overpasses. Yesterday, Toronto police announced that they would be arresting anyone who tries to protest at the Avenue Road overpass of the 401. Toronto Police Chief Myron Demkew showed the world his grasp of math yesterday while announcing this, saying that the Toronto Police have had to manage 308 demonstrations, quote, exponentially more than any other city in Canada, unquote. My guy, please look up what the word exponentially means. That is not even close to true. And honestly, shame on CTV's Joshua Freeman for publishing this without correcting him or saying what exponentially actually means. (laughs) Some of these protests have been held every week at the Avenue Road overpass of the 401. It's one of the few overpasses in North Toronto that isn't a major thoroughfare to parts north of the city, though has as much visibility over the 401 as any other overpass, making it kind of an obvious choice from the perspective of protesters. Freeman writes that, quote, area residents, unquote, have opposed the protests because they amount to harassment and intimidation of Jewish residents. He does not quote the group of residents, though, who have been attending these protests, who both condemned anti-Semitism and the attack on their right to freely assemble in a press release. The police yesterday announced at the same time that they were going to arrest anybody who's at Avenue Road in 401 that they've also arrested someone for holding a flag of an organization deemed to be a terrorist group by Canada at a separate protest downtown. The cops didn't actually name what the flag was, which is a red flag. Had this guy been carrying an ISIS flag, we would have seen this plastered all over headlines across Toronto newspapers. But they didn't say what it was, leaving many people to say, what the heck kind of flag could be considered so dangerous that the police had to arrest this person and that he was inciting hatred and violence. Well, someone who's been at these rallies was in touch with me and told me what the flag was. It's a political flag and not really one that includes hatred. And I'll wait till they say anything more about this before saying what it was. But what is clear is that the police have no problem targeting critics of our government, especially left-wing ones. The attacks on our free expression and speech are growing, and that should concern us all, especially as left-wing activists. Honestly, the climate right now, the attacks on us and our ability to protest and speak out against the government, it feels really tenuous right now. Next to British Columbia, where researchers have published a study that suggests prescription opioids prevent overdose deaths among those with an addiction to potentially toxic street drugs. Camille Baines at the Canadian Press writes this, quote, those who were prescribed at least one day supply of opioids were 55% less likely to die from overdose in the following week when compared with a similar group without a prescription. Those who had a four day or longer prescription cut the risk of death by 89%. 
Bain explains that, quote, the study focuses on prescribing guidance that BC introduced in March 2020 for people who could fatally overdose during the pandemic as they sought a diminishing supply of illicit substances and risked COVID-19 transmission, unquote. The study is based on data from anonymized hospital visits and deaths of people who have been given medicine to deal with, quote, opioid or stimulant use disorder, unquote. The medical files of 5,882 people were included in the study. It also found people who were prescribed opioids had a, quote, 61% lower risk of dying from any cause a week later, and that rose to 91% with a four-day prescription or longer prescription over the same period, unquote. Very few people who have an opioid use disorder actually have access to medication, however, making the results of this study so important. Less than 5% of the some 100,000 people in BC who are estimated to have an opioid use disorder have access to a medical prescription for opioid drugs. Reminder, seven people per day on average die from toxic drugs. The urgency to help people with methods that work is enormous. Now, this is all especially important because recall that in Alberta, the ruling conservatives have sneered at the prescription opioid approach and instead have expanded residential treatment options, which are sometimes forced. You will remember from this podcast that the outcomes of people in these programs range from being no better off to worse off than opioid users who don't go to residential programs. Now to Ontario and Quebec, where a new study looks at the 14 million hectares of boreal forests which have been cleared for logging between 1976 and 2020 and its impact on the survival of woodland caribou. CBC Montreal's Benjamin Shingler reports on a new report that shows that there are only 21 million hectares of boreal forest left in Ontario and Quebec. The definition for boreal forest only includes forests that are more than 100 years old. Shingler quotes Jay Malcolm, one of the study's authors, who says this, quote, We've been cutting the heck out of the boreal forest. It's very frightening. It was startling to see how little is left and how badly fragmented it is. Shingler explains that the, quote, patchwork of remaining older forests threatens the survival of woodland caribou, which require large areas of undisturbed habitat for their survival, unquote. Key to the caribou diet is lichen, which grows in older forests. Logging roads and deforestation have disrupted the feeding grounds and made the caribou more vulnerable to predators. 19 of the 21 remaining caribou herds in Ontario and Quebec are at high risk or very high risk. Environment Minister Stephen Guibault has been critical of Ontario and Quebec for not doing enough to protect the caribou habitat. He's threatened to use the Species at Risk Act, which includes a seldom-used provision that allows Ottawa to impose stricter rules on the province, reports Shingler. The Indigenous Leadership Initiative is a national conservation and stewardship organization who've questioned whether the current management practices are enough. Valérie Courtois, executive director of the organization, said this, quote, We have a tendency as a Western culture to want to maximize our economic opportunities when we engage with natural resources. What we're seeing with the caribou is an early warning sign, and it behooves us to listen to that warning sign because the reality is that this will happen to other species, unquote. Courtois is Inu from Masta Uesh, about 200 kilometers north of Quebec City. She has seen the George River caribou herd, which roams between eastern Quebec and Labrador, up close. And she says this, they're beautiful. Quote, it's not an accident that it's featured on our quarter. I think caribou is the most majestic, the most magical animal I know. Unquote. 
Now to international news. Israel began testifying this morning at the International Court of Justice in The Hague against South Africa's charges that the U.S. ally is committing genocide in Gaza. British human rights lawyer Malcolm Shaw, who is a published author on the IJC and an expert on territorial disputes, according to Gwyn Wright from The Independent, is representing Israel. This comes after South Africa laid out their case yesterday, accusing Israel of violating the 1948 Genocide Convention enacted in the wake of the mass murder of Jews in the Holocaust. That convention mandates all countries to ensure such crimes are never repeated. The Associated Press explains that South Africa pleaded with the court to issue an interim order for an immediate halt to impose binding preliminary orders on Israel, including an immediate halt to Israel's military campaign in Gaza. Judgment will be reserved until a later date, but could come within weeks. The Hague cannot enforce its decisions, and it's possible that Israel could ignore an adverse judgment, but that would only fuel further international condemnation of its military campaign. If The Hague ruled against Israel, what would that mean for close allies like the United States and Canada? Asked about South Africa's claim before the ICJ, Deputy Prime Minister Christian Freeland said that Canada is, quote, aware of the filing and reviewing the case carefully, unquote, but not take position on the case. Complicity in genocide is also a crime, according to international humanitarian law. Would Canada finally feel forced to cease weapons sales to Israel? Might the pro-Israeli narrative in mainstream media finally change? All important to wait and see. And, you know, what's going on at the same time as all of this? Finally, last piece of news. Last night, a coalition led by the United States and the UK that includes Canada started an air assault on Yemen. The BBC is reporting that the coalition struck 60 targets at 16 locations that the U.S. claims are, quote, used by Houthi rebels, unquote. Here is the statement from the U.S. Air Force, as quoted by the BBC. Quote, these include command and control nodes, munitions, depots, launching systems, production facilities, and air defense radar systems, unquote. The campaign is to stop Yemen's attacks on the Red Sea shipping routes, attacks that have managed to reduce the flow of traffic without actually killing anyone. Pretty amazing civil disobedience, if you think about it. Here you've got a tiny country that's been embroiled in civil war for many, many years, saying that they refuse to see the same kind of fighting and destruction happen to Gaza, and through different military operations, have threatened international trade as protest against what Israel is doing to Gaza. And yet, no one has actually been killed yet. Naturally, Canada and our allies care more about shipping than we do about children. And so back in December on Twitter, Canada's public safety minister, Bill Blair, announced our participation in this coalition. That was announced two days after Parliament shut down for the winter break. The attack on Yemen coincides with a horrifying statistic that was passed yesterday. So far, 1% of Gaza's children have been murdered by Israel. Now, this story came out at about 11 p.m. Eastern time in the BBC. And as I was preparing, at about 1 o'clock this morning, the Spectator Index reported that the U.S. actually used more than 100 precision-guided munitions, striking more than 60 targets in Yemen. You know what? At one point in this country, we actually made decisions to go to war in Parliament. It'll be interesting to see how much this plays, but with the Conservatives likely fully in support of it, and the NDP so pathetically weak right now. It's going to be hard for the anti-war movement. That's going to have a lot of heavy lifting to do in the next couple of weeks and months. Those are your headlines for Friday, January 12th. It's Friday. I'm Nora. I hope that you're having a wonderful last day of your week and that you are looking forward to a great weekend. 
This episode was produced with production assistance by Mary Newman. You are listening to this podcast at sandynor.com on the Real News Network podcast feed or anywhere you get your podcasts. I do hope you have a wonderful last day of the week and I'll talk to you on the other side of the weekend.